Hallelujah. Okay. Thank you. We're blessed. Over blessed. Yeah, this is one of the four churches we've committed to every year, and it's majorly blessed. We are blessed back, so it's pretty fun. Um, like last year, I think Linda and I only had two Sundays off um, because we just stay on the road. It's really blessed. Uh, last night was a party, wasn't it? <laughs> Too fun. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Um, I, I'm really grateful for it, too, because um, teachings, what you're thinking produces changes in your life. It produces fruit. And anyway, Linda woke up thinking about last night's teaching, okay? So I, I really owe you a lot. <laughs> and that's just a down payment, okay? I owe you a lot more than that, okay? <laughs> yeah, yep, 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 yep. I want a copy of that message, <laughs> It's going to be playing in our house from time to time. Glory to God. <laughs> I am sorry you can't fit into Chris's pants, though. That's one of the things we first got to meet first time this week, so I do have this sorrow in my heart. Um, I'm going to be teaching up here. I'm going to use building on what Baxter taught. I'm going to talk about the Trinity, talk about God, our concept of God, moving ahead. I'm really excited about that. I also like to get a report... Um, of what we're doing in the Middle East. I always update churches, what's going on over there. Um, Linda and I are going back in October. We have a graduation for our pastors over there. Um, and we did bring two photos back there of the slaves that are over there. There's just over a million slaves in Pakistan. And that's one of the projects that we've got going on. And it's normally... Uh, if someone has a tragic event and they don't have enough money, they go to a brickyard owner for a loan. Not the bank, but the brickyard owner. But you can only pay off your loan by working at the brickyard. And you can never earn enough to pay off room and board. So you have just sold your family into slavery by taking a loan. So there's just over a million slaves. Um, most of them, it was their grandparents that sold them in. They start working at age three, and I got some pictures I was hoping to show. Um, age three, they start working, and then they work until they die. So one of our goals is to end slavery, all million slaves. And we like to think big. We like to challenge things in different nations. Um, we've got a goal that we're just about completed on 20 million commitments of Muslims committing their lives to Jesus. By next year at this time, we'll have attained that 20 million. Next goal is to end slavery um, in Pakistan. So we have several ways that we're working on this. Um, these are some of the young girls. If they're not producing enough, they're also sold as sexual slaves. They have the authority to do that. If they rebel, they'll be in chains. Um, but we're building schools because government passed a law recently, first time in history, that if any slave can pass the national test, about a fifth grade level, they can, if they can pass it, they can leave the brickyard, get a job, and pay off what their family owes. That's the first time for an opportunity to escape slavery, but most of them are illiterate, so we have starting schools for the slaves. Most of them have never had. The next photo, you can see one of the schools, we're in the brickyards, we hire normal uh, classroom teachers in the public schools, they come out and they teach four hours each evening, and they learn from the scriptures, and they're taught, and so here's one of them. We have 16 schools, but we actually have to build at least 1,000 of these schools across the nation. Building schools is just one of the ways for freedom. We have seven different avenues uh, that we're working right now to end slavery in the nation. So one of them, we're attacked going through the United Nations. Another one, we're embarrassing the country for having slaves. We're using every means that you can possibly imagine to end it, but we have a 20-year plan that it will be gone by that time. So that's one of the things we got going. Appreciate your guys' help, too, and all that we're doing over there. We got the schools going, um, and we will have a 1,000 schools to set these slaves education-wise and get them moving. We're blessed. Okay, we get to go back again. I'm going to use the chairs up here because it was such a powerful demonstration 
of our understanding of God. And you can remember from this weekend, those of you who are here, the powerful image um, that Baxter was making on God. The chair in the back would represent uh, the image of God that many of us were raised with. Very negative image. In fact, so negative, we could look at that God and the number one thing we'd think of is God's wrath. God's a very angry God. Now, I was not raised in that denomination. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. We had a certain image of God. But then when I came to understand the born-again experience, I stepped into that wrathful God, and they discipled me for several years. But I have noticed through the years that there has been a progressive advancement of my understanding how good God is from there all the way up. That it happened in stages. There's been a lot of things that I've had to rethink. Because I'm, I'm the kind of person that can't sleep at night till I've thought through the issues. So I've had a lot of nights that I've not been able to sleep. Okay. So back there, though, we are talking about this God that was primarily set in Western Christianity by a guy named John Calvin. 500 years ago, he was the major thinker who 500 years ago... Uh, he was a catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And because he communicated his theology in very succinct, clear form, it carried on. Even today, Calvinism would be the theology, but it has developed over the years into what's called Reformed theology. Calvinistic theology developed into a more mature type called Reformed theology. And it holds a dominant place in evangelical Christianity. Now, the word evangelical means different things in different parts of the world. In Europe, evangelical mostly just means Protestant. It's an equivalent word. Here in America, it usually the simplest definition is someone who believes the Bible is inspired and therefore believes in the born-again experience. That's the most simple definition of evangelical. That definition includes charismatics. That's the definition that our news media would use, people will use in educational society. It's a definition, Bible's inspired, therefore we believe in born-again experience, and it includes the charismatics. However, in the local Christian bookstore, they separate evangelicals and charismatics. So I'm using the general term evangelical. That is the largest block of Christianity in America. They call themselves evangelical Christians. Now, within the evangelical Christians, there is the Reformed theology, taking its root from John Calvin. They're like the big brother of evangelicals. By big brother, I mean they hold a dominant position with evangelicals in America, and they're trying to get everybody to toe the line, to hold to their way of thinking. Not all evangelicals do, but these guys control most of the Bible colleges and seminaries in America. These roots of Reformed theology are powerfully pulling people and expecting all of Christianity to toe the line to their views. Now, champions of this view would be Presbyterian. And then number two, Christian Reformed. The Presbyterian church is proudly proclaims John Calvin as a forefather. They cling to his theology. And then Christian Reformed. Now, a lot of Presbyterians... They've gone beyond it. They now are more liberal. They're not as clingy and tight following Calvin's theology. But he is still at the forefront, at the foundation of that way of thinking. Now think of that God, John Calvin's God. John Calvin wrote his Institutes of a Christian Religion, Calvin's Institutes, two big, thick volumes it's usually published in, and its entire theology, and never once does he mention God's love. Never once does he refer to the scripture that God is love? It's not in his thought. I don't know how you can write huge volumes and never mention God as love. The whole concept coming from him was God is a judge and God is wrathful. That's the concept that he had of God. Now, he's also one who kind of crystallized the idea that God is so holy, he has to pull himself away from sin, separate himself from sin. And that was talked about so eloquently that I hope that you have thought through those things and you've drifted away. You no longer hold to that Calvinistic idea. And partly corresponding to that was the view that humans are so evil 
that God has to pull himself away. The understanding of Calvinism, Reformed theology, is that God is so holy, so powerful, it can't be near sin. And because he's a just judge, he must punish sin. And the wrath of God is being exercised because of the sin of humanity. And humans are just terrible dirt. Even worse than that. He believed that because everyone's born of Adam, Adam's sin, he would say, Every baby that comes into this world comes in so corrupt, they're abhorrent to God. Now, he said that several times in his writings. Abhorrent to God. God despises babies. God is disgusted with babies. They come into this world that evil, lest they grow up and they turn worse. That's you and me. The only hope for humanity, the only hope according to this view of God is somehow justice must be satisfied. Then, after it's satisfied, sins are paid for, then a relationship can be restored. Now, it was beautifully described that as I have rejected that view of God and why Jesus died and view of humanity, it was beautifully described that there's a myth of separation between God and humanity. There is no separation between God and humanity. That's not mankind's problem. People have problems, but that's not the problem. <laughs> okay? God is n never far from us. Acts chapter 17. It says we're all children of God. And it says, therefore, God is not far from any one of us. God answers the prayers of non-Christians. Like Cornelius was not a Christian. You know, God answers the prayers of Muslims. I know that's hard for someone to believe, but there is a God up there whose arms are open wide. And Jesus was presenting to us a view of God, like the father of the prodigal son, trying to get us to understand God is loving. God wants you home. He's not far from you. He he's always has his love directed towards you. So if you're going to abandon that view, you're abandoning several things. First, understanding God is this wrathful being. You're abandoning the view that babies are totally evil. You're abandoning the view that humanity itself is totally evil and they deserve God's wrath. And then you're abandoning the explanation that this group used for why Jesus died on the cross. And that would, theologically, it's called the penal substitutionary view. That when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God took his wrath out on Jesus to pay the penalty of sin. And God released his wrath Payment was made, and then now God is he's satisfied with a penalty being paid. Okay, Now, I have rejected that too. Many of you have heard me teach, and I don't want to teach again, but I have accepted a covenantal view of the atonement that what was really happening is God didn't exercise any wrath upon Jesus Christ, but God was establishing a covenant with humanity, a covenant through the death of Jesus, and when he makes a covenant, you join yourself, and God was joining himself with humanity, and when he did that, he shares everything. Therefore, Jesus dying on the cross, he is becoming one with humanity. Therefore, our sins became his sins, and therefore, our sins killed Jesus rather than the wrath of God. And in addition, God, he allowed this death to happen through the Roman soldiers, but it was really our sins that killed Jesus because Jesus is so loving. He took upon, like a disease being extracted from humanity, he took it upon himself and that took him into the grave, but he left it in the grave that he resurrected out of the grave. And so changing that concept of understanding how Jesus died, why he died, that has been another step away from that concept of God for me. Changing my view away from people are terribly evil and they deserve to be condemned. That has changed my view. Seeing God wrathful at babies, that has changed my view. Each one of these changes helps me move in this direction to see God is better. God is good. And it seems like through the years, I keep moving further and further. God's good. 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 And it just gets better because how you conceive of God changes how you live. Now, there's been a lot of other changes. One of them more specifically about being children of God. You know, with Reformed theology, people are not talked about. Non-Christians are not said to be children of God. 
No, they're taught as the scum of the earth, totally depraved. But then we've got these scriptures that talk about us, all of humans, Christians and non-Christians, children of God. At Acts 17. But you've also got God breathed into Adam, his breath. And then you have in Luke the family lineage to Mary all the way back to Adam. And it says the son of the son of the son of the son of. It goes all the way back. And Seth was the son of Adam, and Adam was the son of God. And there's other scriptures, too, that says, and God is the father of all spirits. He is the father in Adam. He breathed in, and he literally fathered humanity. Reformed theology would never use that terminology. They'll say, no, God created us, but I've come to believe he created and fathered us. He literally breathed his substance, and the substance brought Adam to life. But an interesting thing, when it brought Adam to life, he was still a mortal being. He could still die. Adam, in the garden, they sin, and then they're cast out of the garden, and the angel from God's voice is saying, I'm going to seal from you the tree of life lest you eat of it and you live forever. You see, he was not in a condition to be immortal. His birth from God allowed him to come alive, but it didn't make him immortal. Coming into existence. In fact, there was nothing immortal at that time except God. You know that's said several times in the New Testament? Who alone possesses immortality? Who alone but God our Savior possesses immortality? Immortality means cannot die. And indeed, that first breath allowed him to come alive, yet Adam died. And in fact, God said, you will return to dust. He refers to that several times throughout Old Testament. For example, Ecclesiastics and Proverbs both say, and at death the Spirit will return to God and we will turn to dust. So when I look at, yes, all of humanity are children of God because God breathed into Adam. Therefore, they're born of God. God fathered the spirits of all humanity, but they're alive, but they're not yet immortal. And that has helped me make a distinction why I need to be born again. Because when I get new breath put into me, the second time, the second birth, what happens is the breath of God comes to me and I become immortal. That's revolutionary. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, he who has the son has eternal life. He who does not have the son does not have eternal life. Everybody's a child of God. The breath of God allows them to be born. And both in Ecclesiastic and Job's, it said if God were to inhale his breath, all humanity would turn to dust. If God just went... All of humanity turned to dust. Yeah, that's how dependent we are. That's how close God is. There's no gap between us and God. Every human being, God is closer than your skin. God fills you. He's in you. But just having God hold you together doesn't make you immortal. You know, God holds together everything. He holds the worms in the earth together. But you know, worms die. He holds the trees together, but they die. What it takes to become immortal is Jesus. He who has the life, he who has the son has eternal life. If you don't have the son, you don't have eternal life. So now I'm putting together my understanding. And one of those huge leaps in the direction of God is good is when he says, we're all children of God. Yes. But I still know the difference between being children of God because we're sons of Adam and therefore sons of God. And also the difference between born again when I become an eternal being. Another, another step that caused me to start thinking God is good was Bethel Church. You know Pastor Bill Johnson? A lot of times he starts off his message saying God's in a good mood. Isn't that wild? You see, this God back here is never in a good mood. He hasn't had a good day in centuries. As long as we've been around, I'm sure he hasn't. But when Bethel starts saying, you know, and God's in a good mood, that just is radical. Whoa. Yeah, a message like last night, God likes beer and sex. I'm talking about a good God. Okay, there's this another step. 
Another step that makes me reveal, how, understand how good God is. Another thing that helped me was the healing movement. Those who teach divine healing, and that's their main message, they're very strong on trying to teach that God doesn't make you sick. Because if you think God made you sick, you're going to stay sick. You're not going to have faith to try change. And when they would confront me and show me scripture and say, that's not who's up there. That's not who walks with you. That's not the kind of God you have. You have a God who wants to heal you. That was powerful. Understanding God didn't want me to live in poverty. That was another step to understanding God is good. You know, I mentioned a short time I got to talk on Thursday night, how blessed we are to be able to bless people. One of the greatest blessings in my life has been able to help so many people overseas. You know, when we started on the road, okay, we've been ministering 40 years, but when I started on the road, I slept in my car a lot of days. And now, you know, I said we got 16 pastors last week. We got to buy bio motorcycles for them. These are pastors living out in the, up in the tribal people. There's nothing funner than being able to bless people. Bless people. Bless people. And I like teaching. I like traveling. I like doing all that. But to be honest, at this season, my greatest blessings is being able to help people get free of their bondage and help them succeed. Help them do their dreams. When their dreams convincingly are from God. There's been other steps along the way that have really helped me, but I'd step back here to the, the Catholic view. I was raised in the Catholic view, but now that I look back, I even realized the Catholic view of God was better than the Calvinistic view of God. Yeah, as Catholics, okay, first of all, we didn't think God, people were totally evil. Now, we believe that uh, a baby's born with a stain of sin, but... Baptize them, and it's gone. <laughs> Wash it, and it's gone. Glory, man. God no longer us. We're washed. We, we had baptism, okay? So there you go. And if you sin, you just go to confession, and God likes you again. You walk out. Hi, God. It was wonderful. Even the concept of eternity. The Catholics weren't like the Calvinists. Calvinists believe the vast majority of humanity is going to go in hell and God is going to take his wrath out forever and ever and ever. Man, that's a bad God. That's a scary God. But at least the Catholics have purgatory. Yeah, we got heaven, we got hell, and we got purgatory. And the Catholic view is the vast majority of humanity go to purgatory. And and, and I know most of you, you know, can't relate to that just because you're Protestants. You have not put thought into it. You just put it in the basket of, you know, heresy. Um, and, and I don't believe it, but it was a nicer picture of God. Purgatory, a Tory means a state of. Purg is a purging. A state of purging is what purgatory was for Catholics. That when you go there, you just have to be purged of your sin, but you're eventually going to go to heaven. At least Catholics believe the vast majority of humanity are going to heaven. Whoa, that's a big change from Calvin. Calvin believed the vast majority of humanity will suffer eternally in pain. And I shift from Catholic to Calvin. You know, your theology determines how you act. Determine how Calvin acted. He did some very, very bad things. My dog is named Calvin. Okay. <laughs> Linda's dog is Luther, mine's Calvin, okay? And that's, that's not be a loving thing I did, okay? That was, at first, something I meant, okay? So, my dog was Calvin, but Calvin did things like when there was a heretic in Geneva, Switzerland. He was the dominant controller of the city of Geneva. He was among the elders, but he was the controller. And even in that time in history, the most common name for dogs was Calvin in Geneva, and they meant it as a very critical thing. Now, for example, when there was a heretic, he, under his orders, it was carried out, always use green sticks, because they'll burn slower. That's one of the things that he made a law, that all heretics would be burned by green sticks, so they will suffer more. You see, how you act, what you think, it is coming out of your life from what you believe, what's in your mind, and what's in your heart, it literally does determine how you act. 
I look back here and I see this eternal damnation, people suffering and suffer forever and ever. And I say, maybe I should go back being a Catholic. At least I have hope for people, vast majority. See, they only believe people who committed, you know, mortal sins are going to go to hell. Now, again, I'm stepping away from that. I'm not following that because there's been a whole progression of thought to get up to this place. Another step for me was called open theism. It's a way of thinking about God that God is open for our input. And therefore, we are forming the future with him. That he's a cooperative God. And what it does is it removes the concept that God's in control of everything. And therefore, everything that happens is God's will. And that's where Calvin was at. He, everything, good or bad, that happens to you. You get sick, God wants you sick. Your child dies, God wants it to die. In fact, Calvin had a child die. And he, we have a letter that he wrote to a friend. And he's thanking God for killing his boy. We still have that today, and you just see his thinking. And I then was exposed to open theism, which says, no, that's not who God is. And now I conceive of a world that runs by natural laws. However, we have a God who can intervene. We have a God who is selectively involved. He is involved in this world by causing us to love him. He's involved in this world by giving us his spirit. He's causing, he's involved in this world by teaching us by giving us leaders, giving us gifts, all different ways, but he's not controlling. He can control whatever he wants. But as soon as I got rid of that teaching that God is making everything happen, I start realizing he's not the one causing volcanoes and tsunamis. He's not the one doing all that. Where the people who discipled me had taught me he is doing all of that bad stuff. It's pretty hard to reconcile. And then I come up here. I'm getting closer and closer to a gooder and gooder God. You know, I, I got to admit the Trinitarian view is one of the most profound things for me too. See, back here with, the, with a Calvin's view of God, God was alone in his wrath. Jesus was okay. He was like my brother. And he was a little bit safer, but he was still separate from God. And then the Holy Spirit, his main job was convict me of sin. That's not very good. He follows around and makes me feel bad. Okay, this, this was not a united group. They all had their, their, they're all against me. And at least coming into a Trinitarian understanding was a huge plus for me. Because it brought Godhead together. It created a purpose. What is their big plan? Father. Loving the Son, love, 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 love. The Son loving the Spirit, love, 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 love. Spirit loving the Father, love, 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 love. And what God wants to do is get me in the middle of it. Hey, it brought it all together. It brings the plan of God of the ages. What's all this doing? Yes! It makes me see them all having the same goals, all having. A purpose. But I had to get rid of all these steps getting up to this point. But coming to this point, Trinitarian is another step. Now, all these people back here, they believe in the Trinity. But when we use the word Trinitarian theology, we're talking about this overall plan of God where he's so good that they existed in love, the dance of love, and now he's wanting to make it available and bring us into it. That's amazing. You know, but I, I got one more step. Yeah. That for me has made God even better. Now, and, and this is where I've got to go. And I hope there's another hundred steps to understanding God is better. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But, but there's one more I've had to settle in my mind. It's a big issue. A lot because I'm always, my life is talking to pastors. They got a lot of questions. I need to look with you at John chapter 3 to see this one. John chapter 3, verse 16, if you could put it up ahead. First of all, we know verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, so God sent Jesus into the world so I can have eternal life. Not just so I'm a child who's mortal, 
But Jesus came into the world to give me immortality, to give me a second birth, and the second birth will make me immortal. And then he's going to let me share in his love. I'm already experiencing it, but there is a progression in the revelation of who you are. Thank you, God. It's just over, it's too good. The story is too good to be true, and yet it's true. And here I see, though, the option, perish or eternal life. Yeah, because as a child of God, I was still mortal. But as a born-again one, I'm eternal and immortal. Which, which way would I want to be here? Then I go on, verse 19, because I'm now going to try to figure out judgment. And here, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. There's the first part. What is judgment? That final day when all of judgment is revealed. Judgment's already happening, but when it's fully revealed, Jesus Christ is going to fill all and be in all. Light! In that light is love. It's all of the revelation of everything. And in that light is, I know when I see it, I can be free. There is purity. There is holiness. There is freedom. There is forgiveness. There is everything. All of humanity standing before him. And what is judgment? It's not a judge sitting in a courtroom saying, you did this, you did this, this. No. It's just Jesus going, boom, light. All of humanity standing before him. That's what judgment is. But men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. It seems like that means that there's going to be a different reaction to this light. People who love darkness are going to run, not want the light. But then, two more verses. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So when that light happens, boom, some of humanity is going to look and they're going to run away from the light. They hate the light. No, I don't want the light. Why? Because it's exposing everything. They love their sins and they know that light will expel sin from them, but they want their sin. So the, the very light that was created to make us holy, to make us pure, to bring us forgiveness, for them, they will hate it. No! I don't want the light. I hate the light. And finally, but he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifest. I mean, wrought in God. Two different reactions. Same light, but humans reacting in two different ways. Now, I can't understand why some hate the light, just beyond comprehension. And yet, this is what Jesus says judgment's going to be. On judgment day, some are going to run away. And others are going to run to it. And they're going to see instantly, even if they have sin, they're going to say, you're my freedom. I can feel you freeing me. If I come to you, everything's going to be gone. I'll just be like you. Thank you. <laughs> and the love but there'll be others who scream, no, I don't want you. This has been the view of judgment of the Orthodox Church, second largest denomination in the world, 800 million people. This is how they've always conceived of that judgment day. And it was the Orthodox Christianity that helped me make this step. But the implication of the goodness of God is what I want you to see here. It absolutely revolutionized my life. You see, I... When, when we usually perceive of judgment, and we perceive of, of God the Father, and we wonder how people are going to react, instead of them turning away and hating the light, we, we kind of think, no, on that day, God's a grandfather. And, and we're like grandkids. We're like three or four years old. And when we see him, we're just going to, Grandpa, I love you. I mean, that's what we tend to envision, a grandpa-grandchild relationship. But I learned something from Linda. You know, she's a second and third grade teacher for a lot of years. And she, well, she always says one of the differences between second and third graders is in second grade, you can talk to the kids, and if they're kind of going the wrong way, as a teacher, you can say, wait, 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 come, here, come back, come here, and you, you can turn a second grader. But by the time they reach the end of third grade, they're going the wrong way. As a teacher, you can't turn them. They're not swayed by words that easily. 
you, you got to go grab them and say, no, this is what we're doing. That's, what, that's one of the transitions that happens in a second, third grader. But the problem is on that judgment day, it's not just second, third graders. It's human beings who have given years of their life to choosing darkness. It's not just second, third graders who can be swayed. It's going to be people who hate the light. Wonder about God. Is he going to take people then who hate the light and bring them into his presence, even as they hate it, as they're kicking and screaming, saying, no, I don't want you. Is he going to take them by the scruff of their neck and make them? Or is God like the father of the prodigal? Who even let his prodigal son go? Isn't the greatest step of love to let people make a decision? Isn't the greatest act of love to let your son die? Because I don't believe in a hell where they suffer forever and ever. No, I believe they're mortal beings. And therefore, if they get thrown in, John 3.16, they perish. Wouldn't the greatest act of love be to offer love to everyone? But if they hate my love, to let them, to let your own son die, wouldn't that be the, the most loving thing that could exist? I got one child that's not walking with God. I love him fully. Can't force them home. It wouldn't work. But my understanding is that because they're not immortal beings, because they've not been born again, God's very love, and they'll burn out of existence. So in my progress of the goodness of God, I have to include that too. I have to include a God who not only sacrificed his son on the cross, who was willing to sacrifice his children. That's how loving he is. And my God has gotten even more loving than I had believed he could be. And I come to the place of John, where and first in Colossians, and it says, but wait a minute. Will he not bring all things in subjection to him, both in heaven and earth? Yeah, both heaven and earth, all of it will come in subjection. But guess what? Hell is not in heaven and earth. Hell itself, in Revelations, it, it exists as a lake of fire. And there's an old heavens and new earth, and there's a new heavens and earth. But it exists at a separate place, a place to burn out of existence. And I still have come to believe this is a greater God. And then finally, I look at what is this going to do in my behavior? Which of these Ways of thinking, because thinking, thoughts have implications. And, and here I am, saturated myself in this view, and I've noticed I acted differently with this view. I acted differently with this view. I acted differently with this view. And one of my mentors years ago said, every time your view of God changes, you won't know how to pray for a few days. You ever notice that? Oh, so you're pro uh, uh. <laughs> Because you got to rethink who God is, how you're going to receive. And I found that every time my view of God has shifted, my prayer life changes just a little bit. So here I am. It changes. And, and to demonstrate this, to help make it clear, it was a time when I was asked, well, Harold, don't you hope everyone is saved? I had to say no. And no, that's not in the Bible. What it actually says is, God desires everyone to be saved. doesn't say he hopes. He desires. Now, hold that thought. And then I had a young boy, a 10-year-old boy, come up to me and he asked me, Harold, does God love Satan? Now, nobody can really answer with clarity some questions, but to the best of my answer, I'm saying, I think God's nature is love. He can't help but love everything, but I think Satan perceives his love as hate. It's like people who are deep in sin, and they come to you, and if they realize you're having a hard time accepting their sin, 
A lot of times they feel like, you don't love me. You don't accept me. They interpret your love as hate. Because your love is exposing their darkness. It's the same way with God. People who hate the light, they're, they're interpreting his love as hate. They hate the light. They hate it back because they feel like it's hate. And I come back to this. Don't you hope everyone gets saved? No. Wait a minute. First Timothy and same statement in Second Peter doesn't say God hopes everyone saved. It says he desires them. Well, what's the difference? Well, that there is the whole crux of the matter for me, hope or desire. You see, if you hope something, there's a possibility that it will happen. In fact, you can't hope it unless you have a confidence that it's a possibility. And the scripture doesn't say God hopes all will be saved. It says he wishes. What will be the fruit of my life if I wish everyone saved versus hoped? If I hoped, if my theology was, I know they're all going to be saved. I have a confidence it's going to happen. How would I act? Versus if I desire all to be saved. Because thoughts change. I got a little video. A lot of you know a lot that's going on in the Middle East. I was hoping that you'd kind of put it on because my belief that I desire all to be saved wakes me up in the morning. My desire to be saved makes me do everything if you could start that video. पाकिस्तान के लिए और मेरी दुआ है पाकिस्तान आर्मी के लिए पुलिस के लिए पाकिस्तान के अदारों के लिए उनको भी छू There's more than half a million Muslims every month coming to Jesus Christ right now. According to my understanding, there's more than half a million Muslims turning from mortal children of God to immortal children of God. Every month. Today in China, more than 29,000 are born again every day. In South America, more than 35,000 every day. In Africa, more than 20,000 every day are born again. All around the world, for every human being born, there's four born again. If I... My theology is, that's all going to happen. I hope it's going to happen. How will I act? If I desire all men to be saved, how am I going to live my remaining days? Theology has consequences. Theology has consequences. And it's not that we design a theology for consequences. No, we study the scripture, but we realize what we derive from here is going to determine the behavior of not only us, but the people who listen to us. 
And for so many years, I used to teach in eschatology where Jesus Christ is going to come back. And because of that, so many people did not get a college education. They did not, you know, plan to buy a home, start a business. They were paralyzed. But then when I come to teach and embrace myself a victorious eschatology, they know that the greatest days are ahead of us. My behavior changed. My life changed. My hope changes. And finally... I just want to add this. Finally, I just want to add this. Because here it is. I was raised with this, I mean, discipled with this view of God that he's so bad, he's so bad, he's bad. But in that worldview, here you are, there's a dichotomy of people in this worldview thinking, well, you're saved by grace, God loves you by grace, or you're trying to work. And those are like the only two options in the brain of Reformed theology. They think everybody out there, you're either getting it by grace, God's love, or you're working for it. You know, up here, there's a totally different purpose for life. There's no thoughts of trying to get God's love. But I've realized through the years that assigning motive to any human being will always lead you to deception. Because no one knows the heart of another human being. If you assign motive to them, you say, this is why they're doing it. It always happens with our news media. Okay, Whoever is the president, instead of just saying, well, they did it for, they're, they're doing this, they'll say, well, this president did it in order to win more supporters. Or this president did it because he wants to. If you assign motive to that person, now you are, if you don't like that person, you will assign evil motive to them. I, I read things like back in the third century when the church was shifting from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday. Some people today look at that and say, oh, they did it for evil motives. They did it because they were synchronizing a worship of the sun god with worship of Christianity. People who look back at that, they're assigning motives to the people who did it. When I read back at that time, no, it sounds to me very much like the church does today on Halloween. They offer an alternative to Halloween, like a harvest party. And it sounds to me when I read, the motive I think is, no, they weren't doing it to synchronize with evil. They were doing it to replace evil. But here we are, 1,700 years later, assigning motive to them. But I find out Christians often will assign motive to somebody else, and they'll say, oh, you're doing it to work to please God. And, and no, no. When you are in a love with relationship with God, you're like Paul. And he says, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. There's nothing in labor that has to do with trying to get his love. But there is something really in labor that pleases God. I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him. If I honestly believe that, yes, there's no change in his love, but there is a pleasing of my father, I want to make my daddy proud. I get up in the morning wanting to make him proud. I get up in the morning and somebody looking at me might say, oh, he's just working to get God's love. No, you're assigning motive. I, I mentioned my friend who prays two hours every morning in tongues before he does everything. You could look at him and say, oh, he's legalistic. He's trying to earn God's love. No, he dealt with that years ago. Years ago. It has nothing to do with earning God's love. He is trying to be the best person he can be. He's got a friend who works out at least two hours, pumps weights at least two hours a day. Okay, you look at that and you can say, ah, that's legalism. Now, it, for me, it would be legalism to have to work two hours pumping weight. I got other friends who are perfect in their eating. They will not have any sugar. They will have direct diets. You know what? They're, they're not doing it to get God's love. They're disciplining themselves because they want to be better people. Now, if someone makes me eat the right thing, it's legalism. What's legalism for one person is freedom for another person. What's legalism for one person is freedom for another. Last, last winter, I, I found a time where I was not having time to be with God, so I made myself get up at 3 o'clock every morning and just spend time in prayer. I know there'd be a lot of people, if they watch me, they'd be saying, he's legalistic. He's trying to get God to love him. He's <laughs> just trying to spend time with my father. Nobody knows another man's heart. Nobody knows another woman's heart. What you look at as legalism 
might be the very thing that's setting them free. Setting them free. I have no desire to tell people what we're doing in the Middle East. I have to, to inspire you to help us. I would just as soon tell nobody what we got going over there. Lyndon knows I hate being in public. My choice would be to live in a cabin in Alaska. But nobody can know your heart. Why do you do what you do? You don't have a clue why anybody does what they do. And that's what Paul was writing. Let no one be your judge as to what days you keep or what you eat. Let nobody be your judge because he who does it, does it for the Lord. And there's a whole lot of you who you ought to be disciplining yourself in some area to become a better human being. You ought to be disciplining yourself. But we have as often embraced the Christianity without discipline because we're afraid it will look like legalism when in reality... Paul buffets his body and makes it his slave. Not because he's trying to get God's love, because he's trying to be the best he can be for God. And so I look at what are the implications of the way I'm thinking. Not that I'm going to design my thinking for the end result, but if I'm getting bad results, I'm going to go back to my thinking to say, is it right? And I have, at this stage of my life, Come to embrace this good God. And there's no better God have I been able to conceive of than this God. I have not yet been able to form in my mind a better God than a God who's offering love to all of humanity. But he'll let his children die if they hate his love. I have no other God that I've been able to find better than that God. And I proclaim to you that God, he is my father. And he is the father of every human being on earth. I love you, O Father. I praise you, O Father. Because you are the great and holy one and holy one. And I want to please you, Daddy. I want to make you proud. I want to make you proud. I want to live every one of my days fulfilling and accomplishing what I'm here in the earth to do. Thank you.